Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today, listeners, I have some exciting and bittersweet news to share. On Valentine's Day six years ago, I got the best gift I never saw coming. On that Tuesday in 2017, we released the very first episode of the Got Science podcast, and you listened. We kept going, and you kept downloading. Then radio stations called and asked to air our episodes. And here we are today on episode 151 with thousands of amazing listeners like you, dozens of wonderful guests, and one very grateful host. I should say, two very grateful hosts. My colleague, Michelle Ramapocha, who hosts the Spanish-language version of Got Science, is also blown away by our audience and reach. In six years, I've gotten to go in-depth with my colleagues and other luminary scientists on topics that have fascinated me, frustrated me, and occasionally scared the bejesus out of me. I've asked questions about farting cows, nuclear war, digital disinformation, gerrymandering, and powering my house with a pickup truck. And memorably for me, I once conducted a full interview with a very busy and distinguished scientist and forgot to turn on my audio recorder. Hosting this podcast has been among the most rewarding opportunities I've had in my career, and I couldn't be happier that I had this chance. I'm so excited to see what's ahead for the Union of Concerned Scientists podcast. If you're thinking, is that because there's something different ahead for you, Colleen? You're right. This is my second to last episode as host of Got Science. As much as I enjoy my job, I'm stepping away from full-time work with the Union of Concerned Scientists because I've fallen in love. My new bow is short, stocky, and green with a big family, a pretty tough shell, and a terrible sense of direction. In fact, he refuses to ask for directions. Yes, he's a turtle, and he needs my help to migrate to warmer waters each winter. I've been volunteering with the New England Aquarium for years to help cold-stunned sea turtles, and I decided that I want to spend more time with them. For my penultimate episode, I thought I'd invite a guest who can help explain my passion for turtles and supply some herpetological knowledge. Adam Kennedy is the Rescue and Rehabilitation Manager at the New England Aquarium Sea Turtle Hospital. We chatted about why sea turtles need more advanced GPS, how climate change affects their habits, and the case of the talented Kemp's Ridley, also a turtle. I'm not much for goodbyes, and I'll save my real farewell for the next episode when I introduce and interview the new host of the Union of Concerned Scientists podcast. But before I start this interview, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. I've truly loved hosting this show and getting to hear from you. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, I've been wanting to talk sea turtles on the podcast for a long time. And, you know, you head up the Sea Turtle Hospital at the New England Aquarium, where I volunteer every Saturday. I think it's safe to say that we're both turtle geeks. So before we get into the specifics of the work at the Sea Turtle Hospital. Let's just talk about sea turtles in general. How many species of sea turtles are there? 
So there are seven species of sea turtles, all but one uh, called the Atlantic Ocean, their home, you know, the ocean that we're very close to. You a lot closer to every day than I am. So you have six species that are known as the chelonid or the hard-shelled species, and then you have the one species that is more of that leathery soft shell or the nemoclidae, which is the leatherback sea turtle. The others are the Kemp's Ridley that we see most often here at New England Aquarium. And then loggerheads and greens. And then you will also have all of Ridley's and flatbacks and hawksbills as well that round out our seven species of sea turtles. How much do we know about sea turtles, about their lifespan or where they go or how many there are? You know, that's a, a great question. We do know a fair amount of about what they do. There are certainly times in each of these species' lifespans that we know very little about. For instance, when they hatch and head out into the ocean, there's what a lot of folks call the lost years from when they head back into the water till when they return as you know, juvenile animals back to areas that they frequent. And so these years between zero and anywhere between three or four to a lot older than that, when you're consider some of the loggerheads don't come back until they're closer to being in the 20s, as well as green sea turtles. So we know a, a bunch, but we certainly are missing out on a lot more about what's happening with these turtles. So which of the turtles are endangered? So all species are threatened. They kind of broken up the groups of the turtles to what they call distinct populations. So even though the green sea turtles as a group are doing okay overall. There are certain uh, sections or distinct populations that are threatened, some that are vulnerable. So throughout the world, when you look at various areas, it will depend on where those turtles are. Green sea turtles in the water are threatened when they're on land. They're, They're under a different classification. The Eastern Pacific leatherback is critically endangered. Very few animals left in the wild, whereas our the Atlantic leatherback is uh, a threatened species, and so doing much better than its Pacific kin. So let's talk about our unique situation here in New England. While many of us, including sea turtles, love Cape Cod, that amazing hook of land that creates Cape Cod Bay can really be life-threatening for, for sea turtles. So tell us what happens every year as winter approaches. So summertime, you'll get these turtles that are moving into Cape Cod Bay. And these are all juvenile animals that we see. And again, we're talking about the chelonids or the hard-shelled sea turtles. They, at some point, migrate into Cape Cod Bay, whether that's from the mid-Atlantic, which is most likely where we're seeing the Kemp's Ridleys come, or loggerheads or greens, which, again, could be entering the same way. They could be migrating north as the waters warm up. You know, Cape Cod Bay in the summer is great for them. Perfect temperature, perfect forage. But then, yeah, winter approaches. You start getting those cold winds coming in, and we start layering up as humans. But the turtles decide they want to head south to warmer water. Unfortunately, due to the shape of Cape Cod, it's not an easy southerly swim. They would actually have to swim north and east, as we all know, if you're looking at a map, and then to swim around the hook and, and get back out into open water where they could swim south to warmer waters. And these are animals that do these big migrations, you know, using the magnetic poles. And so, you know, hitting a landmass, it's counterintuitive for them to head north again and then over east and then around. The assumption is they just kind of swim back and forth trying to find openings to get as far south as they can. And as they're trying to figure that out, it gets colder and colder, finally gets to a point where they are physiologically not able to really actively try to move out of the cape. And they kind of just will shunt their blood, they float to the top of the water, 
And that's when the winds blow them into the beaches. And our friends down at Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary go out and find these turtles and the live turtles come up to us and we do our work from there. Right. It's amazing. The volunteers at Audubon go out when the winds are pushing the turtles onto shore. They'll go out and walk the beaches to find them. Right? Correct. Yeah. So they have a, pretty much down to a science down there, so depending on the wind, the wind direction, how long the winds have been blowing, when to go out and walk certain beaches uh, to find the turtles there. So then... Tell us what happens once they've collected these turtles on the Cape. What What is the next step in their recovery? Yeah. So once they determine if the turtle's alive or it's suspected to be alive, some of these turtles, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, when you look at them and they look dead, but there are subtle nuances and trying to determine if they're alive or not. But if there's a question at all on whether or not a turtle's alive, they send them up to, to us here in Quincy. And at that point, we bring them in. Um, again, we establish which turtles look better than others, and we triage through them. They all get their heart rates taken. They get a quick evaluation on how reactive they are to stimulation. If their heart rates are low, they'll get a dose of epinephrine to get the heart kickstarted a little bit. They'll get photos. Turtles that are really not doing very well at all will go to our clinic for a deeper evaluation. They all get a number on them and a band that has a number as well so we can determine who's who, especially when they get further into rehab and they're all swimming together. It's hard to figure out which turtle's which turtle. They will then go to a area where they swim at 55 degrees fresh water that helps rehydrate a little bit also helps maybe kill off some of the epibiota or the various living things that are on on the shells of the turtles and from there again we're monitoring them as they swim to determine which turtles might need more help out in the clinic versus turtles that can maybe get a standard dose of fluids and antibiotics all the turtles will start on a what we call a prophylactic dose of of an antibiotic just to make sure that as the turtles regain health and rewarm up, bacteria that live inside the turtle also are starting to warm back up. And so we want to make sure that any harmful bacteria is uh, taken care of. We don't want the bacteria to get a stronghold on the turtle before that turtle's eating actively and doing more of that kind of road to recovery type work that we get once the turtle's fully warmed up. The warming up process takes several days. You know, they will go to 55 degrees and then 65 and then into the mid 70s is where they ultimately end up. So when they come in, they're cold stunned. Can you give a definition of that and describe the health issues that appear as they warm up? So cold stunned, um, if you think about it, it's uh, hypothermia, basically, that we, we would describe in humans. But you know, these turtles have been out in these cold waters for weeks, uh, maybe a couple of months. As they warm up, we do see a variety of things that are wrong with these turtles. The biggest thing is for radiographs, we see very heavy cases of pneumonia, some that are really bad. These turtles are out inhaling that cold water, and so it gets into the lungs and, and really causes some issues there. We certainly also will see trauma. You know, this year we've had a lot of fractures, not really sure exactly where those are all from, whether it's from hitting rocks, you know, there's some that look like they could have been prop strikes, or could be certainly some predation that may occur. But we've seen a lot of various fractures, to the shells, to the soft tissue. We'll sometimes see eye issues where there's some scratches. Sometimes when they land on the beach, scavengers might get to them, whether that's gulls or coyotes. Certainly they're vulnerable to those animals when they hit the beach. 
So it's a, a gambit of things that we see, as well as a lot of deviations in their blood chemistries. A lot of these turtles are down to a minimal muscle, so we see a lot of low blood sugars or hypoglycemia because these turtles have broken down all those fat and muscle stores. And then how long does it take to treat the turtles and get them ready to be released back into the ocean? Yeah, so given the number of turtles we get into the the facility, we can't keep them all. So we certainly will send turtles out to other facilities. From what we're seeing, we usually try to keep what we think are the worst of the worst. Certainly, you know, we can't know everything that's happening with the turtles with the, the amount of animals that come through and as we're triaging. So we do have to ship turtles out all over the country. It's a huge effort. And really the the best are the ones that come in earliest. Sometimes it's weeks before they head out if we get them down south. Otherwise, these turtles will be with us until we drive down March or April, usually when we might do our first round of ground transports to release. And so uh, those turtles have been here three, four, five months, you know, and then we get turtles that will be here through August, September. So really anywhere between about a month to six to eight months is on average what we're seeing. And then there's always those few cases that could take more than that. We've had some cases that are take multiple years before they're released. Uh, our hope is that every single turtle will be released that come through this program. And what's the success rate been? Uh, so it's varied over the years, but really in the past five, six years, we're hovering at about a 80 to 83, 84% survivorship. So every year we look at what we've been doing the previous year. We kind of debrief on the season and try to figure out what we did well, what can we do better? And you know, a lot of the research that has been done through the New England Aquarium over many years has just helped get that survivorship up and keep it at a really good rate. You know, when you think about it, if there weren't these programs here, all those turtles would be dead. It's cold. They're not going to survive a winter in New England. It's, uh, I, I think, a great percentage of survivorship. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript, a full bio of our guest, and additional resources, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. I've also posted a few pictures and a link to the story of the largest loggerhead sea turtle we cared for at the aquarium. She was a whopping 330 pounds when we released her back to the ocean. Now let's get back to our interview. So the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle which is the predominant sea turtle that we bring into the hospital, is critically endangered. When did the aquarium start taking in turtles? And have you seen progress that points to the species population recovering? The New Aquarium has been taking turtles in really as long as the Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary has been finding their their turtles. We have small numbers in the 70s and 80s of turtles that would come in, you know, single digits. And really, we just do our best to get those animals back to health or moved on to areas around the country for them to continue and get them back in the ocean. It really wasn't probably until the late 80s, early 90s that we started to really do more work. And then certainly by the mid 90s, late 90s, we started seeing more and more turtles and really starting to hone in on the best way to get these turtles back to life and really work on getting them back out 
the ocean. So tens and twenties of animals, sometimes higher numbers getting close to the 100 benchmark. And certainly as progress was happening down in the Gulf of Mexico, the Kemp's Ridley itself was part of a big binational agreement, you know, between the United States and Mexico. There was an oil spill that had happened that was pretty close to Rancho Nuevo, Mexico, which was the only natural nesting beach or the big natural nesting beach of the Kemp's Ridley. And so the thought was if something was to happen to that beach, it would just wipe out this turtle species. So they decided to move some of those turtles up to South Padre Island in Texas. And there was a big agreement, you know, still going between the two countries for many years. They would bring the eggs up to Texas. They were hatched and they would be released off South Padre. So now we do have the two nesting beaches going. Back in the late 40s, there was that video that had come out with the nesting Arabata of the Kemp's Ridleys showing something like 47,000 nesting female Kemp's Ridleys down at Ranch Nuevo. And then fast forward to the 80s and you were down to a couple hundred nests per, per year. So certainly a huge decline in nesting. And with that agreement, along with the introduction of the turtle excluder device on the shrimp trawls, which allowed turtles to escape those trawling nets when they were catching shrimp and just the introduction of the Endangered Species Act in 1973 to help protect this species. We really did see a very large increase in nesting numbers. We're now roughly around 20,000 nests per year. There was a, a bit of a drop off, you know, in 2010, which coincides with the BP oil spill, but we're back close to the number prior to that. You know, we're not seeing these big gains that they saw in the 90s and early 2000s. So there's still a lot of questions as to why the nesting hasn't continued to increase the way it has, whether, you know, the West Bull had anything to do with it. Certainly what's happening down there obviously does affect up here because we have a bigger pipeline of turtles, obviously with more nests that are happening. But certainly, you know, the Endangered Species Act being in place has really helped, you know, not only the Kemp's Ridley go from hundreds of nests to almost 20,000 nests. So with that, you're looking at probably roughly between seven and 9,000 females, given that the females lay anywhere between two and three nests per season. So when you look at the, the total number of nests, you have to put those numbers knowing that each turtle has laid two or three of those. So that's where we're getting that seven to 9,000 number of nesting females. However, there's obviously the males that mated with the females. I'm just offshore. There's also the females that aren't nesting that year. There's the different age classes of turtles. So it's hard to get an exact number of turtles of, of Kemp's Ridley's that are out there in the wild. Right. There's no turtle census. No, no, they're not. <laughs> So, Adam, one of the aspects of volunteering at the aquarium that I love is the fact that the staff is actively doing research to better understand turtle behavior. So what are some of the questions that you've been trying to answer? Again, it's all trying to further the science behind saving these animals. We certainly were on the forefront of stress hormones and the work that we did in the early 2000s. A lot of that now helps dictate how transports and releases and, and how we treat these turtles. A lot of folks look at these turtles and, you know, they have their hard shells, you know, they survive a lot. They've been around since dinosaurs, all that. So, you know, you think of these turtles as being very hardy. And certainly years ago, we used to, when we would do treatments, take them all out of the water, line them up and just kind of bang them out one by one. But then we really started thinking about like, what is going on with these turtles? Are they feeling any stress, what happened. So started looking at that. And really, we did start seeing the stress hormone corticosteroid that showed that these turtles do undergo stress, even though they're not showing it, they kind of just sit there, you know, some kind of flap around a little bit. But their levels of stress certainly peaked. And the researcher at the time, Dr. Kathleen Hunt, noticed that these turtles have some of the highest stress that she had ever seen in any of the species that she had worked with. 
And what about the research that you're doing once the turtles have been released? Yeah, so a lot of work is going on trying to figure out more about what are these turtles doing out in the ocean. So last couple of years, we've been implanting these acoustic tags into turtles under a pilot study to see how that works, because most of the satellite tags only stay on for a few months, maybe if you're lucky, a year or so, especially with these young turtles that are growing. The tags will fall off or the battery life is only good for so long. And so with these internal tags, we're going to get a lot longer data as these turtles migrate up and down the, the coastline. Right, which is really fascinating. When I've been in on a few Saturdays, we've pulled up the map to see where specific turtles that we've released, where they are and where they're they're traveling, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting. A lot of the initial work that we were doing is kind of just showing survivorship. It's that whole question like, does rehab change behavior? Or, you know, or do the turtles when they're released, do they go back to being a normal quote unquote wild turtle? Or did we change behavior in some way? Uh, that may make them more susceptible to when they get back into the wild, not make it. And really what, you know, again, the satellite tag stuff that we have been doing over the, the years was just showing that they do survive. They do go back to those areas that we see other species of the size classes of the turtles that we released. And so now we're kind of looking more into critical habitat. Where are these turtles going? What are they doing? How much time are they spending? And do we need to look at these areas in a different light? Should we be more productive in that area as far as industry? Or should we be making sure that we're not doing certain things in those areas? So it's kind of on the horizon as to why we're looking at those acoustic tags, getting that longer picture data of what's happening with these turtles versus the kind of that shorter time frame that satellite tags will give. Right. So Adam, you've been doing this work for a number of years can you tell me what changes you and the scientific community, what you've seen with the acceleration of climate change? Yeah, so especially up here in the, the Northeast and the New England area, our facility that we built here in Quincy that the New England Aquarium built, we created this turtle hospital to house 40 to 60 turtles at the time because that was about on par with what we saw on a season. In 2010, we had over 200 turtles come here um, in 2000. 12, we had broken the previous record. And then in 2014, we just obliterated everything with over close to 700 live turtles coming into our facility. You know, and you really can't spot a trend when you're in it until you're well within a few years of being in there. And it was around 2014, 15, when they started looking, you know, climate folks were really looking at the Gulf of Maine and, and seeing this warming trend. And so that research and us seeing no decrease in population of turtles coming into our facility through cold stunning really put that together, showing that that warming body of Gulf of Maine really allowed these turtles to enter Cape Cod Bay throughout the summer, whereas previous to that, they had a shorter kind of time frame to make it into Cape Cod Bay before the cold water kept them out again. That's really one of those big correlations that I've seen here. Again, when I first started about 20 years ago, our numbers were small. It's, you know, teens and 20s of turtles that we would see. And it would fluctuate every year. Certainly, we had some years that were bigger, getting closer to 100 turtles, but certainly not what we see now every year, which is hundreds of turtles last year. Um, you know, this year we had 515 live turtles come into our facility here at the New England Aquarium. Um, National Marine Life Center in Bourne also takes turtles in. Um, you know, from Wellfleet, and they had over 100 turtles come into their facility. So again, you know, this is the third largest turtle stranding season on record. We've had three record seasons within the past five years. So again, it's it's pretty crazy. And what sorts of numbers do you think we'll see in the coming years? 
Yeah, so there is a, a paper that was published uh, two or three years ago now that shows with the modeling and the statistical work that they did there was showing that we're going to be doing thousands of turtles by 2030. And that's just seven years away now. And so the numbers will probably just continue to increase. And there's another potential dire consequence for sea turtles as the climate crisis forges ahead. And that has to do with nesting and reproduction. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, up here we don't see nesting, obviously, you know, not yet anyways. Uh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> you know, 40, right. 50 years down the road. But these reptiles, their sex is determined by what temperature their nest is at. So the warmer the temperature for sea turtles, the more skewed to females you will get. And certainly the sea turtles will kind of react to that. They may nest a little bit earlier. They might go to more of those northern or southerly spots on their beaches. So they might shift some of their range, but their historical nesting beaches certainly are feeling the effect of the climate change as well. So you're going to start seeing more of a female population. But again, you know, it's not like it doesn't matter what temperature the beach is. You know, if it's 100 degrees, oh, it's going to be a female. There is a finite threshold of cold and hot as to what would make a viable egg. So we get to that point where these beaches are too warm and you're not going to get a female, you're going to get a dead egg. So you will not have any sea turtles being born. We do talk a lot about that sexual determination, skewing female, but there will be that tipping point where you just will not have sea turtles. So Adam, give me one or two of your burning, like you would just love to know X about one of our species of sea turtle. I mean, my, my biggest question really is, so they're kind of tied together, is one is how do they get in here? It's all theoretical and, and, and hypothetical, and, and likely this is how these turtles show up in Cape Cod Bay. You know, we don't have a definitive answer on that. And the other question, too, that I, I have is when these turtles are in Cape Cod Bay, when it gets cold, how many get out? Do any of them get out? Or is every turtle that's in here as of October 1st destined to strand or die in Cape Cod Bay? You know, those those are my two biggest questions about specifically sea turtles and the region that we're in here. What about you? Well, you're here a lot. So, you know, what questions do you have? I know. Well, it's interesting. You know, I think of all the questions that when we occasionally have a, a group that will come in to tour the facility, and it seems like a lot of people want to know how long they can stay underwater, how long they live. Do we actually know how long sea turtles live? I mean, it's very dependent upon species, but there is some debate with the Kemp's Ridleys as, you know, how old do Kemp's get? Greens, loggerheads, leatherbacks, those turtles are pretty well study to know um, they're living 80 to 100 maybe plus years whereas the Kemp's Ridleys I've heard folks say into the 30s and some folks will say they get up to 70 maybe 80 so and, and I only see the young turtles here so that that question of like there's more questions I think about the animals than we have answers and we don't actually do the research out where they are you know we certainly can time how long they're staying underwater at different aquariums and and areas but being in a tank is very different than being out in the open ocean. Right. And at the aquarium, we have our sea turtles there that could not be released. And I don't know how old is Myrtle the oldest. Myrtle is the oldest of the three that are in there. There's still some question on how old is she because our records don't necessarily state whether she was a hatchling or an adult when we first got her. So, But that's also got to be different than being in the wild. So, you know, I guess it would give you an idea. But I'm curious now, since you were mentioning that we have no data from when they are when they hatch and they enter the water until they 
they show up again. So now I'm curious about what they're doing out there, where they are. Yeah, and I, there was a researcher, Kate Mansfield. She did a big research on hatchling loggerheads where they put tiny little satellite tags on lots of these turtles. So they certainly have helped uncover some of that mystery on that species and those nesting areas. But there's still a lot to know. I'm always fascinated that this turtle that's, you know, the Kemp's Ridley, who is coming from Rancho Nuevo, Mexico, or South Padre Island in Texas, rides the currents and somehow gets off into the Gulf Stream off of New England to get into Cape Cod Bay. Like, it just boggles my mind that, you know, we're seeing most of them versus these other species that nest along the East Coast that we don't see as many. A lot of interesting unanswered questions. For sure. Well, Adam, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. This is, you know, one of my favorite topics to to talk about. So um, it's been great having you on the show. No, this is uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about, too. And thank you for having me. And I love having volunteers such as yourself in. And it's been fun. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Special thanks to Adam Kennedy. Editing by Colleen MacDonald. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks. Stay safe and see you next time. <laughs>